Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, the show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. All right, all right, all right. Hello, everyone, and we are back with another episode. I am very lucky and excited to have the River Roar, the River Warrior, with me this week. So, Gary, thank you so much for being here, man. Ethan, thank you for having me on your show. It's an absolute pleasure, and I love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing today. Well, I've been more or less an environmental advocate all of my adult life, um, and then probably. You know, I worked in government, I worked in academia, um, you know, got a, uh, a doctorate at CU Boulder in environmental geography and been kind of doing this work more or less all my life. About 20 years ago, I started specifically doing um, river protection work and then also got involved with climate change work and, you know, worked for a few different nonprofits, run my own nonprofits. And so I kind of, my specializations now, I would say, are uh, river and water protection uh, I'm still engaged in the climate debate somewhat, and I've gotten increasingly engaged in the issues around population stabilization, mm-hmm. which, of course, um, uh, if, if you think fighting dams is controversial, to start talking about uh, stabilizing the population and, uh, you know, people get riled up pretty quickly. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating um, uh, world in environmental advocacy. Uh, let's just say there's no shortage of work if you can find a way to get paid for it. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, well, we're working on it. And yeah, so I found Gary. Uh, what I do is I actually just Google climate change Boulder and see what comes up. So Gary wrote an article about greenwashing in Boulder, which is how we're going to get this conversation started, because I bring a lot of people in town on the show and we talk about all how much we love Boulder, how it's an amazing place to live. And this show is about discourse. So I think we should kind of get some other perspectives on criticisms of Boulder. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So I guess to get it started, Gary, do you want to explain what is is the concept of greenwashing and kind of why do you think it happens? Sure. Um, you know, I, I'm mostly active at the municipal letter, level in Boulder and Fort Collins. Um, and, you know, both of the communities are similar in some ways. Um, you know, Fort Collins is actually growing much faster than Boulder is. Um, Boulder's population is kind of stabilized now. But um, I, I put out this comp this uh, concept of greenwashing growth. And it's especially true around climate change and climate emissions and climate emissions accounting, um, where uh, the cities, both Fort Collins and and Boulder, uh, and Boulder especially, uh, just doesn't count the emissions caused by growth. They just, and so they, they make these claims that their emissions are going down, but the only emissions are they're going down are the emissions that they're choosing to count. In fact, they're not choosing to count emissions that are directly related to population growth. And so the whole thing is kind of growth biased. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, both Boulder and Fort Collins are very similar. And most cities do this too, and Denver does it too. But uh, you see it especially come out in Boulder and Fort Collins because both cities are claiming uh, right on their websites that, that their emissions are going down when in fact, the emissions that are going down are the emissions that they count, and they're purposely not counting emissions uh, that are related to population growth. Very so I call I call that greenwashing growth. And you know, climate change is sort of taken over the public dialogue as as really kind of the only environmental issue, which it isn't. There's 
lots of other environmental issues. Of course, river protection, habitat protection, et cetera. But um, if you can claim that your emissions are going down, you know, you, you throw up the, 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 green, the green flag and say, look at us, look at us. Mm-hmm. And uh, both Boulder and Fort Collins are doing that. And I think they uh, both have some um, very obvious faults in their accounting methods. And some of it, I think, is done on purpose just to kind of greenwash the growth machine, as I try to call it. Surely. So this idea of greenwashing would be kind of parading or advertising to potential maybe people who want to move. We can call them customers or people who are attracted to whatever you're doing and saying, them, hey, we're very green. We're very environmentally friendly. Um, when in reality, the wash would be that it's just like kind of a facade is the idea, right? Yeah, I would call it a facade. And it's not just to, you know, uh, it's not just advertising to uh, potential customers or new, 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 con- new consumers and, and new people who might move in. You know, it's you're telling yourself and you're telling your community a story, too, that they are making huge progress when, in fact, they're not making much progress. In fact, sometimes they're going backwards, but you're just not telling them. Uh, you know, Boulder is a perfect example of this. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's been this kind of massive construction um, spurt. You know, if you just look at the corner of 30th and Pearl Street at the, at the sort of Google uh, phenomenon and, and, the, and the luxury apartments that are being built around it and the whole thing about Boulder Junction and how we gotta add density and just pack more people in and by golly, that's gonna solve climate change. It's all the roofs. They're, they're, they're not counting any of the emissions associated with any of that construction at all. And so, and, and so they're just making these you know, claims that, that just evaporate when you look at them from like you know, kind of a simple mathematical formula. Yeah, and Gary listed several different examples of emissions um, that are part of growth and building buildings. Like example, we had the Green Builders Guild on a couple of weeks ago talking about the emissions that are um, not taken into account when you build the home versus like when you're operating the home. Um, I'm curious, what kind of relationship do you think affluent populations has with a large carbon footprint? Yeah, kind of throw me softballs there, aren't you, Ethan? Yeah, so, we got to make it, we got to ease into the show, man. We'll get I, I into know, the deeper stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, the number one correlation and causation of emissions is affluence. So, you know, the wealthier people are, the more their emissions. I mean, it's, it's that simple and it's, and it's that way everywhere. You know, wealthy people live in nicer houses, bigger houses, they buy more stuff, they consume more stuff, they drive farther, they fly farther, they eat more expensive food. The wealthier you are, the bigger the bubble gets. And so, um, you know, it's absolutely true that wealth and affluence is the number one driver of climate emissions. And, you know, that's not to say that you should force people to be poor, but it's important to point that uh, fact out because, um, you know, somehow this concept that we're gonna be able to grow and people are gonna be able to get richer and more affluent, and we're also gonna solve the climate crisis. You know, these are, these are, I think, kind of the, 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 the silly stories that America tells itself and Colorado tells itself, by golly, we're gonna, Grow is going to be more economic growth, and we're going to like drive down emissions. These are, you know, greenwashing stories that, uh, in my opinion, aren't true, and I think the facts would support my opinion. 
Yeah. Well, well, fair enough. So one thing I wanted to ask you is, so I've spent a lot of time going door to door. So I really talked to the citizens in Boulder and something that comes up a lot is a lot of people in town are huge advocates of more affordable housing in town. And I was just curious, and they seem, seem to think, is this sort of associated with a decrease in greenhouse gas emissions somehow? Do you think that's incorrect or people just kind of misled on what would happen if we had more people living in place with more affordable housing? Well, those two things are tied together, and I think it's often erroneously tied together. You know, um, the the housing justice people, and I would count myself as one of those. Um, you know, want more affordable housing. Boulder is a very expensive place to live. It's always been that way, by the way. Thirty-five years ago, when I came, it was still more expensive than anywhere else around. Fort Collins is, just, is a very expensive place to live, not as bad as Boulder, but. Um, the concept that you can just keep building more and more and packing more and more people in and drive down housing prices, you know, really doesn't work in a place like Boulder or Fort Collins that have such huge demand. In fact, you sometimes get this the kind of reverse curve where the more housing you build, you actually you actually drive up the, the kind of frenzy around purchasing and, and prices will go higher and higher. Um, if you want to get affordable housing, there are ways to do that, but building more and packing people in denser and denser. Uh, are not the solution, in my opinion. Now, it's kind of a separate issue. But in addition, that does not ever drive down climate emissions. And so, you know, people try to connect affordable housing to climate emissions. And, and those things are not connected, and they shouldn't be. And, it's, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, Boulder promotes this. Uh, Denver promotes it. You're seeing the same conversation in Denver. And the state of Colorado is promoting it too. If you want affordable housing, there are ways to get it. It's the long arm of government, it's taxes, it's buying housing, um, uh, subsidizing people, et cetera, et cetera. That's how you get affordable housing. But just trying to pack more and more people in a smaller and smaller space with, with this magic wand that's just going to make it so dense and so many houses that the prices are going to go down. It doesn't work in a place like Boulder, especially because demand is so high. Mm hmm. So how we talked about growth uh, two weeks ago, I believe, before this episode and how it's basically kind of baked in our into our society that GDP, we want to grow population is going to grow your your salary is supposed to grow. How can we kind of change the paradigm and, and convince people that, hey, uh, we're already living way beyond our means. We actually should maybe shrink our consumption. How could we possibly turn something around when people are completely conditioned by this growth mindset? <laughs> that is the $64 million question. I there it say. is. You know, it, and it's fascinating. Once you start, um, you know, it's like a lot of things. If, if you buy a Subaru Outback, you suddenly see Subaru Outbacks everywhere on the car. If you start thinking about growth all the Cognitive time. Cognitive bias. Yeah, you start seeing it everywhere. And, and it's true. I mean, it, uh, the, the growth bias in American society is, is phenomenal. It has completely taken over both political parties. I know yeah. we, we're always talking about the, the, the um, you know, the partisanship in America and how the parties are at war with each other. Not about growth, they're not. Everybody's pro-growth. The Democrats are pro-growth. The Republicans are pro-growth. Um, so, you know, the, the kind of growth has taken over American society and, and the gross domestic product, which, you know, one of my favorite authors, and, and if, if, now this wasn't always this way. I mean, I'm a little older than you. You're you're a young man, you got your whole life ahead of you. Yeah, so, um, but back in the 60s and 70s, um, we talked about growth all the time. I mean, 
you know, Small is Beautiful was a, was a famous book, The Limbs to Growth. These were famous books. One of my favorite authors was Edward Abbey. Uh, he used to write about the grossest domestic product. And of course, America <laughs> had it. Um, and so, you know, it, it's just been, it was kind of in the 80s uh, where, where the Ronald Reagan mindset sort of came in. And then I would say um, once Bill Clinton came in, the growth machine sort of took over the Democratic Party at the Center for American Progress and other entities which were pro-growth and pro-environment. And, you know, one of, the, one of my, I wouldn't call him a hero, but it was, it was Al Gore who would stand up in front of huge audiences saying, we can have a strong economy and we can protect the environment. You know, people just started pounding and pounding and pounding from both sides of the aisle to growth. Um, and gross domestic product was, was a positive outcome that we can all get. Well, um, you know, there are limits to growth and there are realities to ecological health. And of course, we're bumping up into those all the time. Just real quick, and I'll let you ask another question. No worries. Because you got me wound up now, you can tell. Um, there's, a, there's an organization <laughs> called the Ecological Footprint Network. They're based out of uh, San Francisco. And I actually had them on my TV show a few weeks ago on EarthX TV, the Ecological Footprint Network. And they calculate your ecological footprint. So it's not just your geographic footprint, like how big your apartment is or your house is or your yard is, but your actual ecological footprint, which incorporates all the products you consume and all the flights you take and everything you do and everywhere you go. And of course, America's ecological footprints are huge. We actually consume about five times the resources that are produced in America. So we're, mm -hmm. we're a big ecological consumer, whereas you know, some other countries, which are very poor, will actually consume you know, less resources than are produced in their uh, countries. And America, of course, is out there snagging resources out of other countries and sucking them all into the United States. And so um, we have consumption problems, we have growth problems, we have population problems, uh, we got lots of problems. Yeah, that, those are just a couple off offhand for sure. Um, so there, I've obviously, since I spoke to Dave, I've been thinking about the Dave Gardner. I've been thinking about this more and more. And there are plenty of scientific indicators to show that we are over-consuming to the point where there's going to be some kind of collapse. I'm, I'm thinking about how do we effectively communicate this to the population to, to show, hey, we actually don't like... Don't like it would be good if we made a change. It's like, hey, we are living completely unsustainably and there's just going to be a collapse. Do we need, I was thinking, do we need some kind of cataclysm to show people like some sort of 9-11 COVID thing to get people to change their behavior? Because right away, as soon as the virus hit, everyone locked down and changed their behavior. We're, we're this is in my opinion, I guess I'm not, I'm not supposed to say my opinion about the virus or whatever, but climate change is more 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 pressing issue than a pandemic in my opinion and it's way too i don't know it seems way beyond time for serious action i'm just trying to figure out how can we actually accomplish anything well it's extremely difficult um and i'm not going to you know provide any illusions and also what i try to do in my professional work is not pretend like oh if you just buy an electric car we're gonna fix the problem mm -hmm. or if you just buy that um electric heating device and, and, and sell your, you know, your natural gas um, or, or get rid of your natural gas uh, heating unit, you're going to fix the problem. Um, it, it is way more complicated. You know, one of the things I like to talk about is, is that what I call the moving baseline syndrome. For example, 
when I first came to Colorado 35 years ago, or uh, 36 years ago, um, you know, I-25 was not congested at all. Believe it or not, I-70 was not congested at all. You could drive right up to Vail and right back any weekend, any time, any time of the day. And that was normal to me. Now, you know, new young people move in and their concept of normal is that it takes two hours to get to Copper Mountain or that it takes, you know, an hour and a half to get to Fort Collins if you're driving from Denver. And so we just see normal as something different. And because normal changes all the time, it's the moving baseline syndrome. And it's very difficult to communicate to people, you know, just to be frank, that things are going to hell because, well, no, this is normal. And here's the other thing going on in the state of Colorado, you know, because a lot of the people who are moving here are from places that are in some ways, frankly, more congested and, and more uh, environmentally de degraded, whether it's, myself. Of, whether it's, you know, it's the San Francisco Bay Area or LA or wherever. New York. And you're, used, you're used to sitting in traffic for three hours to get here. And it's like, what? It's only an hour. That's nothing. I'm, this is like easy street. And so, you know, yeah. it's, it's very difficult. No, no, I don't have any illusions. I don't, I'm not going to leave like, oh, here's the solution. You got to do X, Y, and Z. But, you know, try to raise awareness, um, you know, and, and, and I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm uh, almost 60 years old. I've been doing this my whole life. And I think I try not to have too much of a doom and gloom mindset, which is very difficult in, in my line of work. Certainly. Um, but, uh, you know, you got you to stay positive. You got to uh, do what you can uh, and try to make a difference. But, you know, not think that, not internalize it so much that you, that you get too depressed or you just, you know, consumed with the idea of apocalypse. I think it'd be very difficult to be a young person today like you uh, and, you know, and actually be delving into these issues without seeing some kind of apocalypse potentially coming because all the, all the signals appear to be in the red zone. And, um, you know, whether it's biodiversity or whether it's uh, climate change or whatever, there's my dog back there. I see, um, yeah. And uh, uh, everything and habitat destruction, uh, just crowding of people, you know, try to go for a hike on a weekend in, in Boulder County open space or Larimer County open space or Jefferson County open space that the, there's just the cars are packed at the trailhead, the trails are packed. Um, it's hard to not see the, the red zone line uh, everywhere you go. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll say this. Uh, so I started in real estate last year and a lot of my time was spent focused solely on the addiction to growth. Let's make a lot of money. Let's build the business. So I was having fun doing that. And I was starting to dabble in the whole climate space. And then I started this podcast last June and it really got up and running by like September. And in the last couple months, I must admit, it's been very, it's been very hard to keep a positive attitude as I learned about the Holocene extinction, the extent to which we're degrading our environment. So what you said definitely rings true for young people. And I have this position where I'm trying to spread this information to people but I feel really bad about it because I don't want to be like hey by the way this apocalypse thing is kind of like going on a little bit so maybe we should like do something to fight it I don't want to like after how I felt in like January after truly looking into the the destruction of biodiversity that's gone on in the last 20 years it's it is deeply depressing but I think having a faith just having faith in general, whether it be in yourself, in a higher power or in humanity, I think is very helpful to keep moving forward. And then obviously, you know, all we can do is keep moving forward. So I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned ecological footprint before, is that right? 
Yeah, ecological footprint, yes. Yeah, so I wanted to ask about greenhouse gas accounting because honestly, ecological footprint sounds a bit more um, all-encompassing, but I think people are focused right now specifically when it comes to climate change on the greenhouse gases because it's a very simple metric to measure. Do you think we're on the path to some kind of standard regulated way to do this? Because obviously you have an issue with the way Boulder does it, but I'm curious if you think there's there's somewhere where we can be like, these are the, the greenhouse gas accounting standards, and we haven't discussed this in weeks on this show. Yeah, and so you know, I'll, I'll try to dig into the weeds a little bit without making it you know overwhelming and, and Thank boring. Thank you. <laughs> Um, you know, there's, there's a, a question about, you know, a city, let's just take Boulder example, you know, Boulder, for the most part, uh, keeps track of the amount of emissions that are produced in Boulder. Mm-hmm. So the amount of gas that's bought, the amount of heating that occurs, the amount of electricity that occurs in Boulder, they don't keep track of the amount of emissions that Boulderites consume. So in other words, if you buy a Tesla that was manufactured in Texas, uh, there's all these emissions associated with the, the production of that car. Um, and they're big. Uh, there's steel, there's rubber, there's plastic, there's a whole entire, you know, factory. And, and the car just shows up there on the lot. And I'm not picking on a Tesla. I could pick on a Chevy Volt too. But the mm-hmm. car just shows up there on the lot and you go drive it and, and uh, the city will say, aha, well, that's a Tesla. Its emissions are like two thirds less than if it was a gas car, but they don't add all the emissions of the production of the car and the shipping of the car here. So that's just kind of one example of you know, greenhouse gas accounting and how uh, it's, it's biased um, for those kinds of issues. You know, again, it's like housing, for example, Steel is a huge greenhouse gas emitter, the, produ- the production of it. Concrete is a huge greenhouse gas emitter, the production of it. Glass is a huge greenhouse gas emitter, the production of it. All of those things are produced outside of Boulder. In fact, the cement plant is, is down 93, a little ways towards Golden. The asphalt plants are outside of the city limits. And so all the roads, all the sidewalks, everything that goes along in this just kind of machine of growth and construction, the the producers of it are outside of the city. And so the city doesn't count those emissions. And you can sit there in in a really nice house that you put in the super efficient heater. You got your Tesla in the driveway and you you can feel like, yes, I'm doing it. Well, uh, not not true. I mean, there were massive right. emissions associated with the, the car being in the driveway and the construction of the house. You know, I'm not dissing anybody because I, I try to keep it on policy, not personal. Um, and I think that's important so that we don't, you know, get in like into just a battling against people and lifestyles. But we need to change the policy about how greenhouse gas uh, emissions are counted so that the cities are accurately counting the emissions. And, you know, I'll give you another quick example, because this is what comes up in the Boulder and it ties to the affordable housing thing all the time. Cool. So Boulder claims, um, as you know, the city of Boulder claims there are all these people commuting in from outside in Boulder, from Lyons, from Longmont, from Louisville, from Lafayette, calling the L-Towns, Broomfield, Golden. Mm -hmm. They're all driving in. They claim there are 60,000 commuters every day. Now that changed because of the virus. People stopped doing that. But then, you know, the growth machine of Boulder claims, well, we got to build that much housing in Boulder so that they will stop commuting 
growth machine. And then their emissions of driving uh, won't be, uh, won't occur anymore. And then we're this growth and packing all these people in Boulder is going to uh, fix climate change. So, <laughs> you know, again, they're not counting any of the emissions associated with building, the constructing, you know, 20 or 30 or 50,000 housing units. They're not counting any of that. They're not looking at alternative ways. Like you, maybe you should just buy fleets of buses and put them in, you know, Lyons, so Longmont, Louisville, Lafayette, Broomfield, Golden, and just have them, you know, you know, busting people back and forth, back and forth. Maybe that's much more efficient at greenhouse. People don't like the bus though, especially in this country. People don't like the bus, you know, but here's the interesting thing in Boulder too. And again, it gets into the weeds. So just try to stick with me real quick. We're counting, if you have a natural gas heater in your house and you switch it over to a high efficiency electric heater, we count that change because you produced it in your house. But we're also counting people who drive in from Boulder. They're not even Boulder citizens, but we're saying that the city of Boulder is causing those emissions because we've uh, overbuilt the work, the, you know, the number of jobs in town and so it's the city, so we're counting the emissions of people who live in Frederick and drive to Boulder, their emissions get counted. Well, why do those emissions get counted? But the emissions of building the massive, you know, uh, concrete monoliths out on 30th and Pearl Street don't get counted. I mean, it, it's all, and it's, it's not just growth biased. Um, Ethan, I would argue that it's actually rigged. The growth machine and you know, getting a little bit, you know, uh, direct and confrontational, but the growth Do machine it. is actually rigging the emissions count to promote more growth. And it's the very same people who are now running the system at the state of Colorado. I'm not going to mention any names, but they came from Boulder, and now they're now now they're in the in the um, administration of the governor's administration, and they're actually promoting more growth and purposely not counting the emissions that they should be counting just to drive more and more growth. So, so there. <laughs> yeah, there it is, guys. All right. Well, thank, thank you is. for your thoughts, Gary. I appreciate it. It's good to know anyone who's listening. I'm happy they can hear your opinion. I want to ask you, what would degrowth actually look like in Boulder? So how could we possibly accomplish something like this when there's these plethora of millionaires living here who are very likely obsessed with increasing their wealth and they have a great deal of it sitting in this physical real estate that the emissions aren't counted of? So how, what would a, a realistic degrowth plan even look like somewhere like Boulder? Yeah, fascinating question. You know, and again, I'm not going to throw up any illusions that we can degrow uh, in mm -hmm. Boulder or Colorado. Colorado's growing like crazy, um, but I think I think it's a it's an important concept to put out there. Is kind of like, oh, you've got the growth machine over here. Let's talk about degrowth here, and let's, you know, let's just bring some balance to the conversation. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, I have a show on EarthX TV. We actually had a, a degrowth person, one of the um, global experts on the topic on last week and had a really great conversation. Awesome. Also with a person from the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy. So there's the concept of growth, which we know very well. There's people called steady staters, which are trying to stabilize you know, growth and economic uh, expansion, make it so it's flat. And then there's the degrowthers who actually think we need to consume less, we need to contract the economy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I'm not claiming any illusion that um, it's possible or how you would do it. You know, and the degrowth community isn't all completely in agreement with each other. You know, some of them are like- We never are. 
<laughs> yeah, some of them are like they're they're Marxists. They believe that you should force people to consume less, and we should Classic. force an, an equality of consumption. And they actually, and I forget the phrase, but they say you should get a greenhouse gas, um, you know, uh, uh, allotment. This is yours. Mm-hmm. You can spend it any way you want on an individual level. On an individual level, but you don't get any more. So mm-hmm. you know, you, you, that, that's it. You get, and so you know th- those are you know extreme long arms of government kind of examples. Um, and then there are also you know concepts. I want to be just you know a little bit you know this last kind of pie in the sky. You know, there's lots, and I'll just pick one example. Um, the Bo- former Boulder Community Hospital site, right there mm-hmm. across from Ideal Market in in Boulder. Um, uh, obviously, the hospital, you know, sold the building. The city bought it. The city has lots of choices that could do. One that they could do is degrowth it. They could turn it into a park in some kind of open space. I mean, there's a there's a, a dramatic need for more parks in the community, rather than just packing more housing on the place. So, you know, the city has lots of options, as you also noted. Um, Boulder is a, a very influential community. And mm-hmm. so, uh, I, I mean, there's influential and affluent communities. So, mm-hmm. uh, and Boulder, re- Boulder residents are also amenable to being taxed. So, they tax people and, and, and buy lots that haven't been developed uh, and turn them into parks. There's a lot of things you could do that are deep in our system. You can start thinking about it. You can start putting it into the public consciousness to have a conversation. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, I know you called it kind of pie in the sky when you talked about individual greenhouse limits. Um, I get the gist that people don't really want to be equal in this country. So I don't think something like that would ever work. If everyone got the same amount of money or the same amount of greenhouse gas coins, I, it, I don't see that ever working even well, regardless. I just I'll throw my thoughts in. I guess we're just kind of on the end of the whole counting emissions, counting footprint talk. So if I remember correctly from business school, there's this um, financial accounting standards boards, and they're the ones who regulate uh, GAAP, which is the generally accepted accounting principles. I'm curious if you think we we need some kind of regulatory board that would generate some general greenhouse gas accounting principles, you know, something like that. Can we get that going? So everyone's on the same page. Yeah, and so you know the folks at the Ecological Footprint Network, and they do this for cities, for states, for countries. They they have all sorts of programming. One of the things that you can do is your greenhouse gas footprint, and you can actually calculate it. And so it's not just you know you driving the car, plugging it in, or pumping with gas. It's like how much the car costs to produce, how many, how much your greenhouse gas emissions were. And if you go to a fancy restaurant in Boulder and have the sea bass that was flown in from Argentina, mm-hmm. um, that, that the cost of flying in the sea bass and, and, you know, and, 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 and uh, cooking the sea bass and everything is it. calculated in. So you know, there are ways to do it, absolutely. They're, they're not done right now. And, and it's, it's kind of, you know, I won't say it's cutting edge science, but it needs to be done. And it needs to be out there in public consciousness so it's part of the conversation. Because right now, again, it's my opinion that the growth machine is purposely stopping that from being done because they don't want the story getting out. They don't. They they love the story that we can just grow, 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 and our emissions can go down, 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 and we can save the planet. No, it, it ain't gonna happen. It ain't gonna happen. It is a hoax. I'm happy to call it out as a hoax. 
Um, you're not going to, and, and just one example in the state of Colorado, you know, in 2014, which is the last time the state of Colorado did an actual greenhouse gas inventory. I wrote a column about it. It was in the Bullet Daily Cameras, I recall, me and, me and another colleague of mine. Cool. Um, uh, population had gone up um, and greenhouse gas emissions had also gone up too. And even though per capita emissions were going down, 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 total emissions were going up, up, up because of the increase in oil and gas production and because of the number of people keeps coming. So, and this, you know, you just said, there was just a story in Britain, which I just tweeted if you follow me on Twitter, which I'm sure you do because it's this consequential you know, tweets. Every, everyone day. follow Gary on Twitter. I'm going to brand new follow. As of two Gary, hours ago. I'm at in. Gary Walker. Um, <laughs> you know, Britain, uh, Britain just came out with a study. Um, electric cars do have less emissions. It is driving per capita emissions down, but because of population growth and people are driving more, total automobile emissions are going up. And so, um, you know, state of Colorado, and again, I'm going to pick on my friends here in the uh, uh, governor's administration. They're saying, oh, we, we just, we got it just, you know, more electric cars, more electric cars, more electric cars. At the same time where there's 20, 30, 40, 50, sometimes 80,000 new people per year moving into the state. So yes, per capita emissions are going down, but you're never going to drive emissions, you know, down totally in any consequential way, as long as you're just growing, 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 growing. Fair enough. And thank you so much for sharing all your thoughts and opinions on that. I really appreciate it. Now, I think it's I'd like to transition to kind of what you've spent most of your career working on, which is water conservation. And you've earned yourself this title of river warrior. So I'll ask you, Gary, well, why do the rivers need you, man? Can't they fight their own battles? <laughs> you know, one of the things I like to do in my professional work is speak for those which cannot speak in mm -hmm. rivers in the state of Colorado and around the South Korea. West US and increasingly around the planet because I've had the great fortune, the great good fortune in the last six years, seven years to do this work um, around the planet too. You know, rivers don't have a voice. We're, we're the only voice for them. And, and oftentimes in the state of Colorado, long story, um, uh, but I'll make it short, is, you know, rivers can be drained bone dry. They don't have any right to exist in the state of Colorado. People have the right to drain the river, but the river doesn't have any right to exist. So uh, I try mm -hmm. to speak for rivers and give them rights. Um, you know, one of the things I kind of specialized a lot of my career last 20 years is uh, fighting dams and diversions. So trying to divert more water out of rivers, we try to stop that. Dams on rivers, which are hugely um, negatively ecologically impactful to rivers and the health of rivers. Um, you, know, you know, why do I do that? Um, I grew up along a river and I kind of ran wild and uh, it's just kind of in my DNA, I think, that people should run free and rivers should run free. We should all get to grow up alongside a river and run wild. When I had little kids, you know, um, 25 years ago, I moved to downtown Fort Collins right beside the Cache Laputa River and, you know, they kind of ran wild along the river like I got to do as I kid. Um, but um, I think that... Um, uh, wildness is under assault uh, across the planet, across America, including in Colorado and including in our communities. And so it's one of the things I like to do is speak for those things which cannot speak and, and rivers uh, don't have a voice. So I try to, to give them one as best I can. 
Yeah, and I know you do. And as as far as I'm aware, you're the executive director and co-founder of Save the Colorado. Is that right? That's right. Save the Colorado. We try to protect and restore the Colorado River from the source to the sea. Also, um, fighting to stop dams up in Fort Collins on the Cache-Lapooter River, organization called Save the Pooter, and work with other global groups around the planet, um, and especially and including you know my own work trying to protect rivers across the planet. Yeah, what's been your experience like founding this? It's a 5013C, what's it called? Something like that? Yeah, a 501C3 is a is a you know a nonprofit to the IRS. Um, so they call them 501C3 because you can you can raise money and, and it's tax deductible. So that's why they're 501C3s. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a nonprofit entrepreneur, I guess, which is awesome. you know, a, a bit of an odd beast, maybe. Um, and I've been very fortunate in my life to, you know, mostly do work that I love and I created myself and find a way to, um, you know, uh, live passionately and make a living. And, you know, that's, that's probably about as good as it gets. So, I, you know, one of the most inspirational things for me is I had the opportunity to travel a lot the last six, seven years and, uh, you know, people protecting rivers and nature around the planet um, don't have it nearly as lucky and as fortunate we do in the United States be able to do this work professionally. Um, and also, um, you know, oftentimes your personal life can be at risk in other countries, especially the developing world. So um, I try to speak for them too. I try to give them a voice, you know, most of my uh, traveling, um, for example, you know, going to Peru, going to Colombia, going throughout Central America, some parts of Asia. I try to speak for these people and give them a voice on the international stage to, so, that I, so that it can help support their work and, you know, defend their rights to um, try to protect rivers and nature in, in their home country, too. Yeah, very interesting. What actions do you think we can take as Coloradans to ensure the health of our waterways? Um, number one, uh, deal with the problem of growth. Mm -hmm. Growth is devouring the landscape. It is devouring wildlife habitat. It is devouring our rivers. You know, I like to say that uh, there's no, there's a famous environmentalist, David Brower, who, uh, you know, many years ago used to work for the Sierra Club. And he said that um, every loss is permanent. Every victory is temporary. So when growth is like just this like Pac-Man, it's like eating everything, you can stop a dam for a little while, but pretty soon there's just more and more growth and more and more growth. And so, um, number one, deal with growth. Of course, the second, I, you know, is is water conservation. Um, you know, we use vast amounts of water here in the state of Colorado. We don't have to use that water. Um, you know, about half the water across the Front Range, about forty percent in in Boulder, is used to keep the grass green. So, you know, what exactly does that mean? Full stop. We irrigate the grass to keep the grass green in um, July, August, September. And that's where, you know, half of all the river destruction comes from. It's just to keep the grass green. So it's like, it's not like you're not gonna be able to drink water and you're gonna die and you can't take a shower and brush your teeth. Um, you know, somewhere around half the water is just keeping the grass green. And so- um, in the, You mean that in a literal sense, like lawn grass? Lawn grass, yes. Which achieves what effect besides aesthetics? Uh, it, it's just a cultural phenomenon, you know, where, you know, if you look at the, if you're bored, look at the history of lawns. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it's a, 
it's a landscape aesthetic that was that came to the United States from Great Britain uh, when when the settlers came over here and they brought it over to create these vast you know Arcadian landscapes that were that were lush and smooth and then you know maybe made some sense in in the East Coast and the Midwest where it rains but then of course they brought it west where it makes no sense whatsoever in the state of Colorado so uh, we're we're draining and destroying rivers just to keep the grass green. So growth is one and water conservation is probably the second um, thing that you can mostly do to uh, protect rivers in the state of Colorado. That's absolutely insane to me. And then it's something that someone would never think about. It's like, oh, my dad kept, you know, my dad watered the lawn. So that's what I should do. But whatever, we're not here to tell people what to do. One thing I want to talk about as we're toward of getting towards the end here, we'll talk about your show at the very end. Um, as I want to talk about something in opposition to growth and consumerism, which is something, a school of thought that I really enjoy, which is minimalism. This idea that the most important things in life aren't, aren't, physical objects aren't cell phones the most meaningful experiences you've had in your life come from relationships with other people or experiences in nature so uh, Gary what's what's appealing to you about minimalism or what is it well you're preaching to the choir brother. I know just well there's listeners to too it's not just me and you <laughs> um you know there is uh, as part of the degrowth movement actually is just kind of the school of thought of minimalism you know and again you know you mentioned it earlier that growth and gross domestic product and materialism and purchasing power and how big your house is and how nice your car is and how much stuff you can buy and is so part of the american consciousness because you're just being pounded all day every day with advertising mm-hmm. advertising to spend money and buy stuff and you know what what you know we talked about generational concerns when i grew up there was a television in the house and it came on at about seven o'clock in the morning and it actually went off at like uh, 10 p.m. or sometimes 11 p.m. You know, people your age don't even know this, but at 10 o'clock and sometimes 11 o'clock, the TV would go off. There were only three stations. They would play the Star Spangled Banner, the B-52 bombers would fly across the TV screen, all three channels and boom, snow, that was it. Of course now, all media is 24-7. This thing is in your hand everywhere we go, and I'm as guilty as anybody, and it is in your hand, and it, and it is functional because advertisers are pounding messages at you all day long. Absolutely. Tech companies are selling your data to the advertisers so that the advertisers can make money. And, you know, and I'll get back to my point, one of my big concerns about, you know, younger people is – is that I didn't grow up with advertising pounded at me all day. And you mm-hmm. know, people my age which didn't, it didn't exist. And now, you know, as soon as you wake up, um, and if you're 10 years old or 11 years old or 12 years old or however you are, once you get a phone and a computer, you're being pounded with advertising. It's a deluge. And your whole life has become uh, it, how you consume and what you consume and a reflection of your consumer habits. And, you know, I think fascinatingly, there is a backlash to that. And maybe, you know, you're, you're a part of that. I think in some of the younger generations, the millennials, whoever they are, there's an increasing backlash to consumerism and this concept of minimalism. And by the way, degrowth and a related concept that nature should have rights or rights of nature. It's kind of, it's young people are kind of um, uh, relearning and reinventing and kind of learning anew some of the things that were very common in the 1960s and 1970s around 
Small is beautiful, degrowth. It's not the amount of junk you own, it's the amount of experiences that you have. And so I think you just said it well, but I, I'm actually seeing a movement. It's small, um, but there are people who just, you know, uh, you know, turning off the phone, leaving mm-hmm. the phone home um, and, and going out into the world and experiencing it like, like we did not that long ago. Yeah. And I think it's all about um, as far as you want to take it. I'm definitely, I'm very open-minded and malleable, open to changing my opinions, but I tend to be a very extreme person. And when I get into something, I get very interested in it and just shedding all this stuff over the last four years has given me this mental clarity to realize that the only thing that really is important in life to me, at least is just relationships with other people. And you can't sell that on a marketplace and you can't get, I mean, there's like ads for like dating and stuff, but yeah, I just, I just wanted to bring that up at, uh, at the end here before we get into discussing your, your newest project, which is this television show on what's the network called? EarthX TV. Yeah. EarthX so EarthX, EarthX is a, um, nonprofit in Dallas, Texas. They kind of got famous because they had an Earth Day. They had the biggest Earth Day celebration on the planet uh, for several years. And then um, last year, of course, when when COVID hit and of course changed everything else on the planet, they couldn't have Earth Day because, you know, events stopped. And so they they changed their platform over to a TV station. Mm -hmm. So now it's called EarthX TV. And I have a a show on the on the uh, on the on this on the network called uh, Overcoming Overshoot, and we have very similar conversations, just just like mm-hmm. yourself, just like we've had right now. And I, you know, I try to have nationally recognized experts on the topics that we just, you know, several that we just brought up: population growth, climate change, uh, river protection, ecological footprint, that kind of thing, degrowth, uh, rights of nature. I had um, had a, a rights of nature show which had. Uh, a woman who founded uh, a rights of nature organization in um, California, which is one of the big ones called Earth Law Center, and Corinna Gore, who's Al Gore's daughter, and she founded the Center for Earth Earth Ethics in in New York and had them on. And so, um, um, you know, I guess one of the other things I would say is if you're you're a kind of casual consumer of environmental information, you kind of get bombarded by the mainstream American environmental movement. But a lot of the really cool and, and more interesting stuff is going on sort of outside the environmental like rights of nature, uh, minimalism, degrowth. Uh, we had a show about Ecocide, which is an international organization trying to change laws to make uh, you know, environmental crimes like actual, so you can prosecute a, a CEO of a corporation and put them in jail for you know, environmental destruction, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of cool stuff going on outside of the environmental movement um, that you normally hear about. Yeah, I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever heard of a CEO actually going to jail, if I remember correctly, in this country. Not yet, not yet. Yeah, <laughs> eh, well, we, can, we can keep working when the laws, you know, we write the laws with our votes. Um, so have you, have you been enjoying the experience thus far? Is it kind of your baby, this show? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it was my idea and my baby. I had some friends down there in Dallas, Texas. Um, the, the, the benefactor and the founder of Earth Day is a guy named Trammell Crow. Fascinating story there. Uh, his, his dad was a very famous developer, Trammell Crow Industries, which is a global real estate empire. Awesome. And um, he was one of the kids who decided to kind of um, take it in a different direction as, as you know, as a very uh, hardcore environmentalist. Also, I might add a Republican environmentalist, you know, and some of the most interesting things aren't necessarily coming out of one political side or the other political side. 
um, there's just fascinating stories out there protecting the environment that are nonpartisan, um, including EarthX, which is, you know, uh, uh, kind of led by Republicans. Yeah, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt created the national park system, didn't he? Sure he did. Yeah. yeah. Now, can't forget. Well, Gary, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today, man. I just would at the end here, last question, just want to get your final advice for kind of promoting a more healthy planet. What number one, what steps would you recommend the affluent take to address these issues? And then number two, what advice do you have to the up and coming generation? Yeah, I'll answer both those questions kind of once and it kind of ties to something you just said a minute ago. Um, Go on a river trip. Uh, try to pick one that's more than three days, maybe four nights, five nights, six nights, seven nights, something like that. And get out there um, with some comrades. Uh, you can't use your cell phone because you won't have cell access and just try to reconnect with who you are as a person uh, away from the technology and in a community of people where you're having conversations and you have no choice but to have real conversations with the people on the raft trip with you. And so you can experience something outside of this kind of mediated life we all live, which is our culture and our capitalist machine and the, and the advertising that's pounding us all day. So if there's one thing I could suggest, whether you are um, affluent, as you suggested, or a millennial, is just to kind of step outside the machine and try to refeel and rethink and, 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 and consider uh, different ways of being. Yeah. And you might be surprised at who you discover on a trip like that. So yeah, sounds good. Sounds like good advice to me. And Gary, it's, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. It really means yeah, a lot to me. I'm delighted to be on the show. Thanks. And good luck in your business and, and then also in your uh, TV show. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there. We'll see. All right, Gary. Thanks yeah. so much. And everyone, I hope you enjoy the rest of your week and have a fantastic day. Take it easy. Thanks so much for listening to Changing the Climate, a podcast hosted by Climate Change Realty, the most innovative real estate corporation ever conceptualized. Visit ccrboulder.com today.